Would you please open with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8. We've been working through the book of Exodus now for several months, and um, we've looked at how the Lord himself was going to deliver his people Israel from bondage and slavery in Egypt. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was the most powerful man in the world. He was an absolute monarch. He answered to no one. His word was law. He did as he pleased, even including genocidal orders as he made against the Israelites to kill all of their baby boys throwing them into the Nile River. Exodus, at least the first half, can be viewed in large part as a battle of wills. Who is the true Lord and Master of Israel? Will it be Yahweh, their covenant Lord, or will it be Pharaoh, their oppressive slave master? Join me now as we read about the third and fourth plagues, mighty acts of God against the Egyptians to uh, force Pharaoh to let them go. Join me now as we read Exodus 8, verses 16 and following. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign will happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God, as he tells us. So Moses said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you and will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again 
by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, we ask that you would grant us your Holy Spirit, that we may understand, believe, and obey that which you have said. In Jesus' name, amen. The mighty acts of God against Egypt were proof of presence. He was proving who he was. When Pharaoh had initially heard that this Yahweh had commanded him to let his slave population go, his response was, I don't know who that is. I don't know Yahweh. So these mighty acts can be seen as proof, sort of his resume. Let me show you who I am. Let me show you what I can do and why you should listen when I tell you to do something. These proof of presence mighty acts made it very clear that Yahweh was completely different than anyone else, than any other God, than any other mighty person in all the world. Yahweh was unique. The Lord was showing who he was both to Egypt and to Israel. Israel, at this point, had been slaves for generations. They had been in Egypt, and they did not know another Lord than Pharaoh. And so this was, in a sense, Yahweh's introduction to his own people. Who is this covenant Lord that is calling us out and leading us into a new land? They needed to know that as well. They needed to understand that this new Lord, this Yahweh, was not like their old Lord, was not like Pharaoh. He was very different in many ways. They needed to understand that Yahweh was powerful beyond compare. There is no equal to their Lord. And so God makes this division between the people of Pharaoh, the power of Egypt, and the power of Yahweh. The power of Yahweh would be abundantly clear to all who saw these mighty acts, both Egyptian and Israelite. Last week, we looked at the plague of the frogs, the second great plague. And that was the first time that Pharaoh had said, fine, take them and go. Just take away the frogs. You can go free, sacrifice to God, but just take away all these frogs. I can't stand all these frogs. We talked about last week that the frog is not particularly dangerous. Uh, You shouldn't really be very afraid if there's a frog in your house. But suddenly when there's 10,000 frogs in your house, it becomes a little bit more of an issue. And that was Pharaoh's dilemma. There are just too many frogs but as soon as the frogs were gone, he changed his mind. And so this, this third plague is somewhat unique among the plagues because there's no go to Pharaoh and say. There's no preamble. It's just take that staff and strike the dust. The coming of the third plague against Egypt did not have any warning attached to it. It was just this will happen. The previous plague of the frogs had this warning, as we see, um, Back in uh, verse 6, 
Um, So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Uh, Sorry, before that. Um, In verse uh, 1 and 2. Uh, go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. There was a clear warning. Listen, or there's going to be a lot more frogs than you're prepared to deal with. And yet the plague of the gnats don't have that warning. They just came because of uh, the Lord commanding Moses and Aaron to simply strike the ground and bring this plague on. Why, though? Why did we not have any sort of warning? Perhaps because of Pharaoh's breaking of the agreement. Perhaps it's uh, retribution that Pharaoh had said, okay, fine, you can go, just take away the frogs. God lived up to his end of the bargain. He removed the frogs, and Pharaoh reneged on his end of the deal. He failed to keep covenant. Perhaps the gnats were the punishment for Pharaoh's fickle, hard heart. And we see that the the subject here is the the dust becoming gnats. It's very clear, says it several times, that the dust became gnats. Now, there's one thing that every country in the world has an abundant supply, dust. There's a lot of dust. And so the point is, There is a lot of these insects, these small pests. Now, when it says gnats, what what precise creature are we talking about? There's frankly no way to really know. And over the years, uh, there have been various suggestions, everything from horseflies to um, lice to fleas uh, to gnats. None of those I particularly like the sound of any of those. Those all sound bad, which is actually the point. No insect, you would go, oh, good, there's a bunch of these things. They're a problem. That's the whole point. But like the frogs before them, the problem is with the sheer numbers of these little critters, the ubiquity of the gnats. They're everywhere rather than the dangerous nature of the gnats. Gnats are irritating. I used to have an outdoor job. I used to be a landscaper, and I remember some days, you know, I'd be on the lawnmower, and the gnats would just be in my ears and in my eyes, and it was super irritating, right? Has anyone had that experience of of gnats? Now take that and multiply it by a 1,000, and there's just gnats all over you. How long will it be before you go, okay, that's that's enough. I'm, I'm all done with the bugs for today. Thank you. So the magicians, these Egyptian magicians, as we talked about a few weeks ago, um, had been uh, having a, a bit of a, a, a let's see who's, who's got the best tricks with Moses and Aaron. So the first thing that Moses and Aaron did was they came in and they threw the staff down and it became this serpent. And the Egyptian magicians who, now when we say Egyptian magicians, don't think of like an entertainer in Vegas. Uh, it's not David Copperfield. These are more like political advisors. These are respected men. They, they do magic tricks, um, but it's probably a combination of sleight of hand and demonic witchcraft sort of things that they're doing. But when they saw the, the staff become a, a serpent, they said, ah, oh, I know this one. And so they threw their staffs down and they became serpents, of course. And uh, Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs and That was a little bit awkward, but it was enough to convince Pharaoh it's not that big of a deal. 
what, they, what Moses and Aaron are doing, we can do that too. You don't have to be scared of this Yahweh character. And then when the Nile turned to blood, the magician said, oh, I can turn the Nile to blood. Do I want to do that? Well, well I'll, I'll do it anyway. Now, does it actually help the situation for the Egyptians if they turn more water to blood? Not so much. And then again, with the frogs, they're able to replicate it. Again, though, they're not able to undo the plague. They're only able to increase it. They are able to have more frogs come, which isn't helpful. This plague is the first time that they are unable to replicate what's been done. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. This is the first time that they acknowledge they're over their head. The magicians attempted to do what they had done before, but the turning dust to gnats was simply beyond their ability. And so they went to Pharaoh, and they said, this is the finger of God. This phrase, finger of God, is uncommon in the Old Testament. But it actually is found several times in Egyptian literature. It's not uncommon for them to talk about some act of God as the finger of God, showing direct intervention of the gods. And they recognize this is, this is the finger of God. Power knows power, I suppose they, they might say. And so they informed Pharaoh, and this is a way of saying you might want to consider tapping out. Um, you, you're out of your weight class. This is not going to go well for us. But Pharaoh's heart was hard. Previously, Pharaoh had been able to dismiss the mighty acts of Yahweh, at least in part because his own magicians, his own miracle workers, were able to replicate what they did. But now, his own advisors, his own magicians are saying, this is, this is beyond us. But his heart was hard. Moses and Aaron were now standing by themselves without someone else doing what they did. It would seem then that the magicians were willing to capitulate to, to Yahweh, but Pharaoh was simply unwilling to do so. And you might ask, why? Why does he have such a problem just letting them go? Well, there's a couple reasons why you could look at that. You could look at the uh, image of it. You have a, an entire people group, the Israelites, who had been enslaved for generations now, how does it look to the Egyptians? What does it do to his image as the undisputed king to now free all of the slaves at the behest of an outsider? You could also look at it from the economics of it. What does it do to the Egyptian economy to release their entire workforce? And suddenly, all of these Egyptians who have gotten used to having the Israelites do all of the hard labor, now suddenly they're going to pick up the chisel and, and quarry that stone and haul that? No way. That's slave labor. You could also look at it from the religious element. What does it look like for this outside God, this God that we do not know, this Yahweh, to come in and outdo the Egyptian gods? The Egyptian pantheon is simply unable to stand against him. And Pharaoh says, I will obey this foreign God. 
Whatever way you look at it, there's reasons beyond just his own pride and his stubborn heart, although that's certainly part of it as well. But this is, this is not a surprise to God in the least. In fact, back in uh, chapter 3, where God is calling Moses to come and be the deliverer, to go back to Egypt. You'll remember that Moses did not want to go, and he tried to talk God out of it. Um, But God knew, no, you're the man, and you're going to go. But further, he knew exactly what it was going to take for Pharaoh to let them go. So back in chapter 3, verses 19 through 22, God says this, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. God knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew what it would take to soften Pharaoh's hard heart. So from Pharaoh's perspective, it looks like I can maybe just hold on. I can endure all of these gnats and all of these frogs and all the water turning to blood. I can, I can take it. I'll just white-knuckle it till it's over. And I will not let go. I can win. But the outcome is never actually in doubt from God's perspective. And at this point, Moses has been fully convinced of the power of Yahweh. And so we move on to the fourth plague of the flies coming up. And we see here, for the first time, God put a division between people. The other plagues had impacted not only the Egyptians, but the Israelites as well. But now for the first time, there was going to be a different outcome. Moses was instructed to go early in the morning to meet Pharaoh by the water and to deliver the message once again to let Israel go that they may serve their covenant Lord. This is very much reminiscent of the very first time that he went to Pharaoh by the by the Nile River, and it was to go early in the morning and deliver this message. You see a, a pattern developing here of um, let my people go that they may serve me. Uh, again, it's significant that the, that the command is let my people go that they may serve me. It's not a let my people go so they can just do whatever they want. They're not being freed just so that they can pursue their dreams. They're being released so that they may serve Yahweh, their true Lord. And again, Moses issues a conditional warning. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and your people. There is a clear if-then going on here. If you refuse to obey you will suffer these consequences. God makes it very clear. There's uh, really not a lot of subtlety going on to the message. It is a clear and easy-to-understand message that I think every parent and every child should understand. Clean up your room or no TV. Take out the trash or 
no more dessert, or whatever it is. Every parent has issued a command like that. Every kid has been on the receiving end. And as a kid, sometimes you might go, let's see, do I love TV enough (laughs) to want to clean my room? (sighs) Am I the only kid that ever did that, of kind of weighing out? Is the consequence really enough to make me do that thing I really don't want to do? Kind of do this equation in your head. But Pharaoh's issue was not that he did not understand what God wanted him to do. It was that he was just too hard-hearted and proud to obey. Pharaoh cannot claim, oh, I didn't know. Oh, you wanted me to let them go. I didn't know. If only you had made yourself clear. No, he knew exactly what it was. And yet he just refused to submit. But that is not uncommon. The human heart is capable of incredible acts of stubbornness. Many times, people know better. They know what it is that God would want them to do. They know what the right thing is. What's the problem? They just don't want to do it. They, they want to do their own thing. They don't want to submit. They don't want to obey. We want to be stubborn like Pharaoh. Now, by God's grace, he does not smite us with flies every time we are stubborn like this. But oftentimes we hurt ourselves. We shoot ourselves in the foot when we refuse to submit to God and we sinfully go on with our own way. We are sabotaging ourselves. We are not winning. We are hurting ourselves. It's something like, you know, when, you're, when your child is refusing to eat their nutritious dinner that you've made for them, and they go, no, I don't want it. And you're going, yeah, but this is good food. I'm not trying to poison you. It's actually good for you. Your refusal to eat this is actually depriving you of nutrients that would help you get big and strong. Also, you're probably in a bad mood because you're hungry. If you would just eat a little bit, you'd probably feel better. And the kid goes, no, I will not eat. This delicious food that mommy made for me. I will dig my feet in. How many times are we like that child or like that pharaoh? These flies were a little different than the gnats. There is a different Hebrew word being used here. But it's, again, not a technical term to where we can pinpoint exactly what species of insect this was. But the point is, again, they're everywhere. And these ruin the land. It's not just that they're everywhere. They also destroy things. Maybe they eat the crops. Maybe they bite the people. It's hard to say. The point is that these flying insects would be everywhere and on everything. Pharaoh's own house, his own palace, would be full of flies. Pretty miserable once again. The houses of all the Egyptians would be filled with these swarms of flies. And for the first time, God says, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. God wanted to make it very clear that he knew who his people were, and he was going to shield them from the flies in a supernatural way. The previous mighty acts had impacted everyone, but these flies 
would only affect the Egyptian people. Now, if you know much about a swarm of bugs, they're equal opportunity pests. They don't really respect boundaries. Whenever I've had a picnic and I, I tell the bugs, this is my area. You stay off the blanket. That's your area. This is my area. They never listen to me. It's very frustrating. These flies follow the commands of the Lord, though. These flies are God's flies. These flies know their orders and stick to them to make it clear that it is from the Lord and that the Lord was behind all of this. And the flies did their job well. The flies came in great swarms into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Now, the way the text reads, it sounds like Pharaoh's palace was the first one to have flies in it, which has a bit of irony to it. Uh, Pharaoh, the one who is refusing to let the people go, is the first one to have his house infested with these flying insects, whatever they might be. And he's not able to stop it. With all of his power, with all of his wise men, he's not able to stop what God has determined he will do. What we get from this is a couple things. God is able to make his people, to keep his people from suffering alongside the world. He is able to make that distinction, to shield his people And sometimes God chooses to shield his people from things. But the other plagues also show us that God does not always do this. Sometimes God allows us to suffer. But sometimes he shields his people. Whether or not God shielded Israel from the plagues, though, they were still his people. He wasn't in some of the plagues saying, you're my people, And other times saying, I don't care about you. They're always his people. God's purposes for whether he is shielding his people or not are his own. And we might quibble and say, Lord, I think you should just shield me from all of this suffering. I would rather go through no trials. I'm sure if the Israelites had their way, they would say, don't, don't interrupt my 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 life it's very irritating to have my house full of gnats i really don't like it shield me from that and yet what's the problem the problem is we're trying to make god answerable to us god does not answer to us we answer to him he is lord we are not what is god's goal in all of this is he shielding his people so that they would just not have the inconvenience of all of these flies? No. In, in verse 22, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people live so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. It's expressly said they are shielded so that they would know, so that Pharaoh would know that he is the Lord in the midst of of land. It is, in other words, for God's glory. He is showing himself. He is showing his power in the midst of the land. God was not shielding Israel because they could not handle the flies. No, he was shielding them to be a statement that he was present in the land of Egypt. Now, what? 
Think about that, that message for a moment. Why is it important that they know that he is the Lord in the midst of the earth? Part of this goes back to the ancient religious mindset. Almost all ancient Near Eastern cultures were polytheistic. They had tons of gods for all sorts of things. And part of the reason for this was because the way they thought about divinity was local gods over specific areas and over specific things. So if you were in the land of Egypt, you better worship their fertility gods if you wanted good crops. But if you were in the land of Babylon, you better figure out how to appease their fertility gods if you wanted good crops. If you were a fisherman, you better figure out how to appease the gods of the sea so that you have fish. If you were a woodworker, you better appease those gods. If you were a blacksmith, you better appease those gods. They had tons of gods for all these different things. And so God was saying, I'm not like that. I'm not a god of Canaan. I'm not a god of the Nile River. I'm not a god of the, the, the frogs. I'm god of it all. It's all mine. Yahweh was asserting his dominion over the entire land of Egypt, as well as over the Nile River and all of the creatures that are therein. If God could even turn these very common bugs and frogs into plagues, there is nothing that is too hard for Yahweh. The Lord was making it clear that he was nothing like anything Pharaoh was familiar with. He doesn't respect your limits. He doesn't respect your worldview. He is Lord of it all. And there is nowhere and there is no thing in all of creation that is not under God's dominion. In other words, he's the boss. It's all his. Pharaoh can do nothing to stop it. Such a powerful deity cannot be fought, cannot be overcome, must only be obeyed. That's the point that God is making here. And Pharaoh, at least temporarily, again, has a bit of a change of heart. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. So Pharaoh could not stand these flies infesting his house. And so he called Moses and Aaron and told them, go ahead, sacrifice to the Lord, but do it in Egypt. Don't go anywhere, just, just do it here. It's kind of doing a serve Yahweh, but still you're my slaves sort of thing here. Moses' response is fascinating. And it gives me a, makes me ask a lot of questions that there's no real answer to. Moses says, it would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? Notice, Pharaoh doesn't say, no, 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 it'll be cool, it'll be fine. He seems to go, oh yeah, no, you're right, they're definitely going to try to kill you if you you make those sacrifices. You're right, good call. Um, We're not... We're not told explicitly what is it about their sacrifices that would be so abominable to the Egyptians that they would attempt to stone them. We're not told, but we are given hints back in Genesis where uh, we're told that uh, being shepherds, that was an abomination to the Egyptians. 
But again, we're left with the, the, the why. why. Why do you hate that line of work so much? We're not told, but we are told that they could not abide the sacrifices being around them. And so we're only left to guess at why they needed to, to go out. The only reasonable solution then was for God's people to leave, go out of the land of Egypt where the Egyptians would not have to see their sacrifices and offer these sacrifices to the Lord. We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. And Pharaoh agreed to this, sort of. He says, I will let you go sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far. Just don't go far far. Don't go too far. You're coming back, right? You're going to come back to my slavery. So go, 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 go appease Yahweh. Go, go appease your Lord, but then, then come back and serve me. He signified that he expected everything to go back to normal. Once they were done serving Yahweh, then it would be back to the status quo of slavery under his thumb. Pharaoh's desperation to get relief from his present plague was not really enough for him to let go of the control that he enjoyed over Israel. He wanted relief, but was not willing to let it go completely. Moses was again willing to intercede for Pharaoh. When Pharaoh asks him, plead for me, Moses is willing. He says, okay, I will plead that the, that the swarms would depart from you. And then he reminds Pharaoh, only let not, let not Pharaoh cheat again by letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Pharaoh's done this before. We've been down this road, and it's not the last time we would go down this road of Pharaoh getting fed up with the current status and saying, okay, mercy, mercy, God, you have your way. Then the situation gets better, and he goes right back to how he was before. But God is gracious anyway. God again answered Moses' prayer, and he removed the flies from Egypt completely. God held up his end of the bargain, and yet again, Pharaoh showed himself to be devious and hard of heart, not someone that you can trust, not someone that you should take their word. Once the flies were gone, he failed to let the people go to sacrifice to Yahweh. This was a disgrace for him, and yet it only highlights once again, the faithfulness of Yahweh, the mercy of Yahweh, and the cruel deceitfulness of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was not the kind of Lord that you could trust. Yahweh is. Yahweh keeps his promises. Yahweh always does what he says. You can trust Yahweh, but you should not trust Pharaoh The reality is that God's resume is impeccable with keeping his promises. He always keeps his promises, even when those promises are warnings. And God says, if you disobey, you will suffer these consequences. He will keep that promise. He will also keep the promise of forgiveness, of faithfulness, of blessing. Everything, then, that God says you can believe and put your trust in. If God says it, Build your life on it. Put all of your money on that because that will happen. 
God's faithfulness is why we follow him rather than any other master. Human masters, even the ones with the best of intentions, can't always be trusted. Sometimes things are beyond their control. Sometimes they are knowingly deceitful. Sometimes they're not. But you can't always trust the word of a human. But God always keeps his word. And yet God's faithfulness is only part of the reason why we should trust in him, why we should build our lives on his promises. The other aspect that is vitally important is his mercy. You see, if he was only a God who keeps his word always, guess what that guarantees you? His wrath. Because he promises that those who violate his law disobey him will suffer the consequences but thanks be to god he also is full of mercy and makes promises of life for those who turn to him there are many examples of repentance of those who receive god's mercy we're going to be looking at acts chapter 2 briefly in acts chapter 2 you have this great sermon by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus has been crucified by the crowds of Jerusalem, screaming for his blood, he didn't stay dead. After three days, he rose again, and after spending time with his disciples, he ascended back into heaven, and as his disciples were together praying in the upper room, the Holy Spirit came upon them and filled them to where they were speaking in, in the languages of the people who were gathered in Jerusalem for the, for the feast. And they, all these people heard the proclamation of the gospel and of who Jesus was and why it was so important to them in their own languages. And at the end of this sermon, Peter says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. They were full of guilt and remorse. They could not go back and change that they had been the ones screaming for his blood. But look at their response. is amazing. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What a wonderful example of God's mercy and his response to repentance and belief. If you are cut to the quick, if you know you have sinned, if you are tired of the way of sin going about, what do you do? What shall I do? The answer isn't look inwardly. The answer isn't, well, just try harder. The answer is believe, repent, receive the forgiveness of sins that only he can give. Repentance involves not only feeling bad about what you did, it involves a change of action. It means to do an about face, go 180 the other way. So that looks differently depending on on what the sin pattern has been. For the thief who says, 
I'm convicted. I can't do this anymore. Repentance looks like not only saying I'm sorry for what I stole, but try to make it right. If you have wronged people, apologize, make it right to them, admit your guilt, and then receive the forgiveness that God can give. You don't have to carry around that weight of guilt any longer. In other words, the flies that have infested your life can be a good thing if they push you to repentance. Whatever it is that makes you realize, I have got to change, if it pushes you to the cross, is a blessing. Understanding our need of God, our need of change, is the necessary first step to making life-changing goals and life-changing changes. The next step is to repent and receive the gift of God through Jesus Christ. Pharaoh's repentance was not a true repentance because he was still holding on. He's keeping one hand on that, the reins of, I still want them as my slaves. I will let go a little bit, but I'm not going to totally let go. True repentance is fully, Lord, your way, not mine. Fully submission, full submission. The repentance in Acts 2 is a good model of what does true repentance look like. What shall we do? Repent, be baptized, receive the forgiveness of sins, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's mercy is abundant. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, but he calls us to himself to receive mercy and grace. Do you know what the difference is between mercy and grace? Mercy is not getting the punishment that you deserve. Grace is getting the blessing that you don't deserve. We need both of those things. If you only got mercy, that only brings you up to zero in, a, in an accounting sense. Your debt's paid, but now you have a zero balance. Grace is not only your debt is paid, but now you have a huge credit in your account. You didn't earn any of that blessing. It is given as a gift through Christ alone, through faith. And so this is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that when we recognize our need of a Savior, he is abundant in his love and blessing to honor his promise that all those who believe in him will receive eternal life, receive forgiveness of sins. This is a great blessing that we should never take for granted. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for your mercy and grace, which is abundant. Lord, I pray that you would bring about true repentance. May we not be those who are stubborn in our refusal to repent like Pharaoh, but may we receive the mercy that you alone can give. Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in the light of your grace each day. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we are observing the Lord's Supper. This is an institution given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ, an institution that is a reminder of his grace, of his sacrifice for us. The bread represents his body. The cup represents his blood shed for his people. And so all his people are welcome to partake of this and reflect on God's goodness, his faithfulness. This is a family meal, a covenant meal, open for all those who have truly trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And it comes along with a warning, however, to those who do not partake in a worthy manner. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul writes this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What does it mean to partake in an unworthy manner? An unworthy manner does not recognize what's going on here. It's not just snack time. There is a, a holy aspect, a spiritual aspect, when it's accompanied by faith, that you are being fed, your spiritual uh, good is being done as you reflect on God's ministering to you through the work of Christ. Examining yourself does not mean that this is only a table open to those who have never sinned. This is the table of redeemed sinners. This is the table for those who know that they need a Savior and say, Lord, save me. This is the table of those who have received the forgiveness that Christ alone offers. And so as our men come forward to prepare the table, I would invite you to prepare your hearts and examine yourselves.